today. For those of you that are new or visiting our church, my name is Aaron. I have the incredible privilege of being the pastor here. I love this church. I love the heart of this church, the generosity of this church, the difference that we get to make together in Mexico and in our own community and the lives that are being touched right outside of of these walls because of your faithfulness. It's just one of the highlights of my life. Let me welcome those of you joining us online. I know the month of July, there are many people traveling on vacation right now. And after last year, you deserve a good vacation. So wherever you're at today, we love you. We miss you. We hope you're being relaxed and refreshed and and, uh, have a safe trip home. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible. Uh, This has been tradition during our Ephesians series, and I don't know if we'll do it forever, but we're definitely going to do it throughout the uh, Ephesians series as we declare God's word over the message. So if you have your Bible, hold it up with you, and I I love the truth of this statement. This is my Bible. Say that with me. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says that I have. I can do what it says I can do. do. Holy Spirit, Spirit. teach me God's word today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The Bible always deserves a round of an applause. It is God's word. It is unchanging. It is the truth that we can build our life upon. It's so much smarter than me. That's why I like to stick very close to the Bible in my messages, because it makes me sound a lot smarter than I really am, because it's been around a lot longer than me. We're going to dive into the second half of Ephesians 3. This is kind of the halfway line in the book. This is one of the most powerful prayers in all of the Bible. And so we're going to read this, and then I'm going to pray and ask God to show up today, because half of the message today is supernatural, and I don't have the ability to, to convince you or to logically persuade you with what we're dealing with today. The Holy Spirit has to take this message and supernaturally impress it upon your heart because there's parts of this message that are just outside of my ability as a communicator. And you're going to see why in just a moment. If you have your Bible, follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel. I kneel before the Father from whom Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Do you realize God can do more than you've ever prayed? I asked my pastor, who's 84 years old right now, Tommy Barnett, do you have any regrets in your life? And he said, I didn't ask for enough. He goes, everything I prayed for, God did. What would my life have looked like if I prayed bigger or asked for more? Can I tell you, God has the ability to do more than anything you've asked and anything you've ever even dreamed of, prayed for, or imagined how, according to his power, 
that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Holy Spirit, today, I ask that you would take this message and supernaturally impress it upon people's hearts. As a communicator, God, I, I can't do it justice because so much of this, without you, Holy Spirit, revealing it to people, it will fall flat today. So I pray that you will put a hunger in people's heart to know you more, to grasp how high, how wide, how deep and long the love of God is for those who know him. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at the world today, uh, atheism was really popular about 20 years ago. Today, atheism isn't as popular as it once was. There's still people who claim to be atheists. If you look at it in America today, it's not, as, it's not as growing or fast growing or popular as it once was. And the reason is right now people want a connection with the divine. People want a transcendent experience. They want to know that there's something out there. They're looking for something that's spiritual, something that can touch their soul. There's a, there's a hunger for, for spiritual in our country right now. People have come to the realization that there is, there's got to be something to this universe beyond just us, beyond just our life. Now, the challenge with that is, is you basically have two streams in the world today that, that by and large, most people fall into one camp or the other. You've got people who are very, very religious, but non-supernatural. Uh, that's a lot of churches. This is actually where the church was for years and years and years. We want good Bible teaching and good doctrine, and we want morals and ethics, but we really don't want to believe in miracles or the supernatural or the fact that you can actually experience the presence of God. We just want ethics. And, and that, that's where we've been for a long time. We're moving into kind of a new season in, in America today, especially where, let me coin it like this, People want spirituality without morality. I want a connection to the spiritual. I want a spiritual experience. I want, uh, I want a transcendent experience. I just don't want to be told what to do. Don't tell me how to live. I don't want morals. I don't want ethics. I don't want institutional religion. I just want this spiritual connection with, with a loving essence of the universe. I just don't want to have to change my life or my behavior or how I live. So for years, we had morality without spirituality. Just give me morals, ethics, give me good doctrine, theology. Uh, I just don't want any of the weird stuff. And now we've got spirituality. I want a connection. You see this a lot here in North County. You've got the self-realization clinic where I want a spiritual experience, but I really don't want to change the way I live without any morality. Now, when you approach the Bible, the Bible doesn't know anything about these divisions, and the passage we're looking at today, this prayer from Paul, is so powerful because it's very clear, uh, it's a full theology on what Christian experience is all about. Not just to know God loves me. I think all of us know God loves us. Like we, we saw the verse, for God so loved the world, but that's not enough. We need to experience his love. Not just with the logical head knowledge, but in our heart. And what Paul is getting at today is there is an experience in Christianity that goes beyond knowledge. It surpasses knowledge, he says. It's beyond 
logic. It's a sensation. It's emotional. It's experience. And so we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the reality of this experience that you see right here in this passage. We're going to look at the nature of the experience. What is it and what isn't it? And then we're going to look at how do you encounter this experience? How can you know the love of God the way Paul is talking about knowing the love of God? First, let's look at the reality of this experience. There is a reality that you can actually have a sensation with God, that you can experience God. Beyond your knowledge, you can experience the love of God. There's two things Paul is praying for in this passage. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ may dwell in, he's praying this, that he may dwell in your heart through faith. Let me ask you a question quickly. Who is he praying for? Christians. He's not praying for non-Christians. He's praying for Christians. He's praying for members of a church. Well, I thought Christ was already in our heart. Why is Paul praying for something that's already true? Well, let's move on. He also, in verse 18 and 19, prays that they would grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ. To know this love, to know that God loves them, a love that Again, surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Again, he's writing to Christians. But the problem is in John, John chapter 14 and Romans chapter 8, and more places in the Bible than we can actually mention, Paul says over and over, if, if Christ doesn't dwell in your heart, Jesus says, if, if, if he's not in your heart, you're not a Christian. In fact, in Colossians 2, 9 and 10, it says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. You have fullness in Christ. Which means you can't get any more full than you are right now. Think about this. You can't receive any more of God's power than what you already have. You can't receive any more of God's love, any more of God's peace, any more of God's joy than what you already have, because all the fullness of God lives in Christ, and you, in Christ, have been brought to fullness. Yet Paul in Ephesians 3 says, praying that they would be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. So is Paul praying for things that elsewhere in the Bible says is already too? Kind of creates a little bit of confusion here. So, so what's true? Do we already have these, or do we need to receive these? Well, if what Paul is saying is true, and it is true, because it's Scripture, and it's not a contradiction, even though it kind of seems like a contradiction, then what Paul is actually saying is this. It's one thing, let me put it like this, it's one thing to have millions of dollars in the bank. It's another thing to withdraw the money, access the money, and to use the money. I mean, no, you can be incredibly wealthy. You can have billions of dollars in the bank and live like you're poor standing in food lines, getting handouts, even though you've got all the money. So you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't know how to access it, if you don't know how to withdraw it, if you don't know how to spend it and use it, having it means nothing at all. You can be incredibly rich and yet live like you're poor. And that's what Paul is saying many Christians are doing. It, it reminds me of a story. I used to tell this for a long time. I told it. And now, now that I'm older and I think about this story, I kind of wonder if it's even true. 
So I don't even know if this story is true. I heard it years ago. It may not be true. It may be true. Either way, it's a great story, even if it isn't true. But the story goes like this. There was a farmer in South Africa, and on his farm, this farmer bred poodle dogs. I have no idea why he would breed poodle dogs. It's just not my favorite dog. Like, if I'm going to have a dog, I want a dog that can fight or do something cool, just not just look fluffy and pretty. But for whatever reason, the farmer loved poodle dogs, and he bred these poodle dogs on his farm. One year, there was a tribe of lions traveling across the land, and a baby lion got separated and lost from his family. And the baby lion wound up on the farmer's land. And the farmer didn't know what to do, so he decided to raise this baby lion with all the poodle dogs. So this baby lion grew up with the poodle dogs. He ate with the poodle dogs. He lived with the poodle dogs. He learned to be a poodle dog. But something happened over time. The baby lion grew up and no longer was he a little poodle dog? He was now this massive, big, strong power. He had all the features, all the characteristics, all the ability of a massive, roaring lion. But he had this, this teeny-weeny little problem. He still had the brain of a poodle dog. He didn't know who he was. He didn't realize every time the farmer would yell at the poodle dogs and they would cower in fear, the baby lion learned to cower. He didn't realize one roar from his lungs would send the farmer running for his life. Every time the pit bulls next door would begin to bark and the poodle dogs would scurry and they'd run away and they would hide, the baby lion learned to run away and hide. He didn't realize he could eat the pit bull if he wanted to. He had all of the power, all of the ability of a mighty roaring lion, yet he had the brain of a poodle dog. And unfortunately, that is the way Satan has raised many Christians today in the church. He's raised us with poodle dogs. We don't see who we are in Christ. We don't know the power, the ability, what we have. We have millions of dollars in the bank, and yet we're living in poverty because we don't know how to access what is rightfully ours. And so the question is, is it possible that there is so much more of God than what you've actually tapped into or what you're currently experiencing. Is it possible? See, if you're a Christian, we have to realize that. There's, there's two sides. Okay, Christ living in me, the fullness of Christ inside of me, it's another thing, to, it's one thing to know that, it's another thing to live like it. See, you can know in your head that the fullness of Christ is living inside of me, but does that mean you're living like the fullness of Christ is living inside of you? In other words, we know, but we don't know. Every Christian knows that God loves them. You wouldn't be a Christian if you didn't know that God loves you, yet why is Paul praying that you would grasp the love of God, how high, how wide, how long, and how deep it is? In other words, you'll never get to this experience of God until you get to the place where you realize, I don't have the slightest idea of what the love of God really is. The most I know of God's love is three or four drops compared to an ocean. And that's true for all of us. The problem is, so many of us, we, we don't want to go to the emotional side of Christianity because we've seen emotional Christians and we've seen Christians that live off a of sensation and they're very weak and they're very immature. And so we shy away from kind of experiential Christianity and, and we just, just give me the word, give me doctrine, give me theology, give me truth. Yet without experience, we really can't know the depths of God's love. Let me give you an example. Blaise Pascal, one of the most brilliant left-brain, logical, non-emotional. He was a French philosopher and mathematician. 
He was the father of probability statistics. He was one of the, 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 the pre, uh, pre-inventors of the calculator. He had an experience with God. Now, again, you got to get, get, this is not an emotional guy. He was not known to emotion. He was not a sensationalist. He was very logical, very left brain in his approach. He had an experience with God that had such a profound impact on him. He wrote it in his diary, took a page out of his diary, and actually sewed it into his jacket pocket that he lived with for years. And and here's here's a photo of it. And here's what he said. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, November 23rd. So he gives the date. And then he says, from half past 10 at night until half past midnight, a little over two hours, one line, fire, fire. He goes on to write, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is one of the most logical, non-emotional people who had this two-hour encounter with the presence of God that surpassed knowledge. It was a deep emotional experience. Let me give you another one, Jonathan Edwards one of the fathers of the Great Awakening. He, again, was a very logical left brain. He was studying to be a lawyer, not emotional, not a sensationalist at all. Actually kind of shunned that side of Christianity. He would go out nightly as his was custom to spend time alone in the woods with God. And here's what he wrote in his journal about an experience and encounter he had with God. Once as I rode out into the woods for my health, In 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place as my manner commonly has been to walk in divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was, for me, extraordinary. I saw the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, grateful, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. I mean, he is overwhelmed emotionally in this. Which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. This kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears, weeping aloud. This is a very profound, deep, emotional experience. He came in contact with the presence of God. What happened? What happened to Blaise Pascal? What happened to Jonathan Edwards? They grasped. Again, Paul says, I pray that you may have the power together with all the Lord's people to grasp. That's what happened to them. In that moment, they knew how wide, how long, how deep how high his love is, and it's a love that surpasses knowledge. It bypasses logic. These are two heavyweight intellectuals, left brain, logical, non-emotional people. Scholars for years have struggled with these two encounters to, 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 to make sense of it, because it, especially with Blaise Pascal, who's a French mathematician, some people just say, well, he went crazy. 
criticized this experience he had, 20% kind of in awe and jealousy, and the other 80% just trying to deconstruct what happened to him. See what happened. They knew, but they didn't know. They knew that God loved him, but they never felt the reality of the love. Let me ask you a question. What have you settled for? Do you know anything like this? Have you ever had an experience, anything like this? I know, I know Christ lives in my heart, but have you ever felt fire? The overwhelming presence of God. Let's look at the nature of this experience. What is, what is the nature? What is the, the basic features of it? Well, let me give you two things that it's not first that people are confused by and then kind of show you what it is. What this passage that we're reading refuses to do is what everyone else does when they want a spiritual experience or a, a transcendent experience. Is this passage refuses to split two things that everyone thinks they, 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 they can't coexist. You've got to split them. The first thing is it does not split emotion from thinking. See, a lot of people think you've got you've to kind of get rid of the left brain to have a right brain experience. You've got to get rid of the logic so that you can have an emotional sensation. Now, now look, look at this passage. In verse 14, what does Paul say? For this reason, I kneel before the Father. See, we don't catch that at first glance. What that means is Paul is incredibly emotional right now. You don't pray kneeling in this period. That's why Jesus in Mark 11 says, when you stand to pray. Why? Because standing is how people prayed. The only time you would kneel in prayer is if you were broken with emotion, you were overwhelmed with emotion, and you just couldn't stand. Paul is incredibly emotional here. And when you study this prayer in the Greek language, if you read it in the original language, it's very difficult because he's soaring, it's, it's not complete sentences, he's, it's kind of a ramble, it's very, very emotional what Paul is saying, what, what, what he's expressing, but at the very same time, it's profoundly intellectual. There's no repetition, there's no out of control language here. Paul is being very clear, very detailed, very vivid, but very, very emotional. Look at Jonathan Edwards, we just read an excerpt from his diary the theology of what he was saying was incredibly deep, incredibly profound, yet the experience he was having was very emotional, very sensational. You see, what we do today is we tend to split doctrine from experience. We've got some churches in Christianity that focus on experience, and they chase sensation, and all they want is this emotion of, we just want to be in the presence of God, and they tend to think that doctrine and theology is unimportant. And then you've got another side of Christianity, of churches, that we just focus on theology and doctrine, and we don't get into any of the weirdness or any of the experience, and, and that's all scary and dangerous. We just stick to the Word. And what Paul does here is he brings them together. He doesn't split emotion from thinking. This is deeply emotional, and yet at the very same time, deeply theological. The second thing Paul does is he doesn't split the individual from the community. We tend to think to have an experience like this, I've got to go live on a monastery. I've got to kind of be in isolation and live as a monk to even have an experience like this. Paul doesn't do it. I mean, look at how many times he puts us in community in the middle of this, this incredible experience with God. Verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God is a family God. God is a, a father. 
He doesn't put us in isolation. He puts us in families. Because he's a father, we have brothers and sisters. The key word is, is grasp, but look what he wants us to grasp. Verse 18, that we may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people. He doesn't say that you may have the power individually, that you may have the power on your own. No, that you may have the power together, together. This happens when we're together, when we're a body, when we're a community of people that we could grasp how high, wide, long, high, deep the love of Christ is. Look at the very end. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that has worked within us. It's not his power that's at work within me, with you. No, it's within us. To him be glory in the church. It's about church. You see, modern people, the, the people of our world today, they want spirituality, but they don't, they don't want to be a part of a church. They don't want to be accountable. I want a connection with God, but I don't want to be tied down to a church. I don't want to be a part of institutionalized religion or organized religion. I want individual spirituality, but I want it the way I want it, and I don't want to be told what to do. It's never going to be allowed biblically. The Bible doesn't understand that. I believe it's the tension of keeping these things together that brings us into the experience. So that's what it's not. What, it, what, what, what this experience is not is splitting emotion from thinking. It's not splitting the individual from community. So what is it? Well, the key word, verse 18, is to grasp. To grasp. To grasp what? The love of God, the fullness of God. See, Again, in these passages, it's difficult to get to the grammatical point because sometimes Paul rambles on, and, and, and this one especially is a little bit confusing, but if you get to the grammatical heart of it, it's to grasp. He wants you to grasp the love. That's what he's praying for. He's praying that you would grasp God's love. Why doesn't Paul use the word feel? Think about this for a moment. Why doesn't he say that you would feel the love of God? No, he uses the word grass. What does the word grass mean? It's the Greek word katalabambo. I think that's how you say it. It is a hard word to say. Katalambano or bano or something like that. It, it, basically, it means to ambush. That's what the word means. I practiced this all day yesterday. Now I can't say it. <laughs> this is very embarrassing. I am not a Greek scholar. The word means to ambush. That's what the word means. It's to ambush. Paul's saying, I, I pray that God's love will ambush you, that it'll, it'll am it's the same word that Paul uses in Thessalonians 5, verse 4, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should ambush you, surprise you like a thief. Now, what does the word ambush mean? Ambush is first, A is surprise, B is conquered. That's what Paul is saying. I want God's love to surprise you and overwhelm you, to conquer you, to overtake you instantly. Now, why would Paul use a word like this? It's very hard to translate, very hard to say. Whenever the Bible talks about the difference between head knowledge and experience, the Bible always uses sensory language. Remember in Ephesians chapter 1, that the eyes of your heart may see. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's always sensory language. Why? It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to see it, to taste it, to touch it. Jonathan Edwards, talking about his experience, he used honey as an illustration. 
He said, I can, I can give you the, the, the chemistry composition of honey and help you understand why organically honey tastes sweet. And you can logically understand honey is very sweet once you understand the chemistry of it. That's logical knowledge. But once you taste honey, it's not logical knowledge anymore. It's sensational knowledge. I now know it's sweet because I've tasted it. You see, in Christianity, we're to have both. In Christianity, we're to know that God loves us, but we're also to taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to taste God in our hearts. And this is the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. You've heard me talk about one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to convince you that you're righteous. Why? Because you don't believe you're righteous because of your past. We need the Holy Spirit to convince us that I am righteous with God because of what Jesus did on my behalf. I need to feel that, to sense that, to experience it at my deepest possible level. Now, you understand this principle. You, you, you know that this principle is true because many of you have seen the negative side of this principle in your life or in the life of people you know. What do I mean? If you've ever had a father tell you that you are worthless, I know many people in our church have experienced that. It's horrible. But as a child, as a teenager, a father that says, you're no good, you're worthless, how many of you know it's one thing to know that that happened? Like I know on May 12th, 1991, my dad said that I was trash, that I was worthless. Like logically, I know that that happened. There, there, there's a fact. There's a historical fact that this took place in my life. But I don't just know that it happened. I know it happened. Why? Because it's altered my life. It's affected the way I live. It's filtered my decisions. It's had a negative impact because it's vivid, it's real. I don't just know it in my head, I know it on my heart because it, it had such a profound impact. When he said it, I know it on my heart. So we know that this principle is true. What Paul is saying is, I want you to know on your heart God's love in such a way that it supersedes and it heals and it covers every other thing that has been impressed on your heart. Because when you know that God will never leave you and never forsake you, when you know his love, how high, wide, deep, it changed, it, just like that negative word altered your life negatively, when you experience the love of God, not just know it in your head, but when you know it in your heart, it alters your life positively. When you begin to see yourself as loved, see yourself as righteous, see yourself as accepted, see yourself as forgiven. And that's why he uses the word ambush. This happened to Peter. Peter, you know, was a racist, and all of a sudden, God ambushed him in a dream and said, no, you're not going to show favor. I don't show favoritism. I don't, I don't divide Jews from Gentiles. And in Acts 10, 34, Peter began to speak, and he says, I now, Catalambano, there I said it right, <laughs> I have been ambushed. I know it's true. Now, Peter knew that God doesn't show favoritism because all throughout the Bible, it says God didn't show, but now he'd been ambushed by it. He didn't just know it here anymore. He knew it here. God ambushed him. This is what you need today. Now, what's very interesting about this prayer, look at this prayer. Not one time does Paul pray for their problems. And we know they had problems. We know they were suffering. We know they had physical problems. They had financial problems. They were being persecuted. They were being martyred. They had major problems in their life. Not one time does Paul pray for their problems. Why? Because Paul realized if they got this, it wouldn't matter what problems they had. 
that this was bigger than their problems, that if they got this, they could handle any problem that comes their way. And the truth is, most of the problems we have, probably half of the problems we have, we have manufactured in chase of this. Because we're looking in all the wrong places for this, that we've created so many problems in our life looking for this. So finally, how do we get it? How do we, how do we encounter this experience? Well, there's no gimmick. There's no step-by-step formula for God doing this. You can't decide when God does it, where God does it, but you can position yourself. I was, I was looking at some commentary by Tim Keller on this, and he, he, he put four kind of key phrases together that positioned yourself to encounter an experience like this. And I really like the way he articulated it. It rhymes, and so I'm going to share it with you today. Uh, he called it spiritual preparation, gospel comprehension, truth meditation, and holistic participation. So let's look at that in closing. Spiritual preparation. The Holy Spirit has to prepare your heart to receive this. This is a gift of grace. You can't manufacture it. You can't decide when and where it happens. And this is why we, we don't go after the gift, we go after the giver. Because it's like, God, I want this experience. No, no, God, I want you. I want you. And if I prepare myself for him, there's times I experience this. The problem in our life today is we don't spiritually prepare. We don't have any margin in our schedule. We don't have any time where we're actually alone with God for something like this to take place. I mean, think about it. Do you really want God to do this to you in the middle of a business meeting with your boss? Fire! I mean, weeping, uncontrollable tears of joy. Like, it's probably not the place you want it to happen. Well, when else is it going to happen? Where in your life have you created space for God to do this? See, Jonathan Edwards regularly went out to spend time with God. He spiritually prepared so that when God showed up, there was a window of time for God to do it. Is there a window of time in your life that you regularly give God for him to show up like this in your life? Gospel comprehension. This is huge. This is huge. You've got to comprehend the gospel for this to happen. Remember the movie Armageddon? I, I showed the photo a few weeks ago, one of my favorite movies, you know, Bruce Willis. I'll give my life to save the world. One man realizes that for everybody to live, I have to die. There's no greater story than that. There's something about a story when somebody gives their life to save everyone else, it moves our heart. Do you realize Christianity is the only religion in the world where that story is at the center? Name another religion where that story is at the center of it. Somebody gave their life to save the world. See, every other religion, here are principles, here are rules, here are steps you can take to find God. Meditate on these rules. Well, See where that gets you. Paul doesn't say he wants you to grasp the principles of God. He wants you to grasp the commands of God. No, I want you to grasp the love. You see, for information to become sensation, you have to look at the story of Jesus. You have to look at the cross, the gospel. How wide? As far as the east is from the west, he's removed our sins from us. How long? For all of time, God's been coming after us. The Bible says the lamb was slain before the foundation of of the world. How high? Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. It seated us with heavenly places in Christ. How deep? Jesus descended to hell for us. He went to the depths. He cried out, my God, my God, 
Principles are never going to melt your heart. Meditate on the Ten Commandments. It'll never move your heart. Meditate on the principles. Meditate even on the golden rule and the teaching of Jesus. It'll never melt your heart. Meditate on the gospel. Think about how high, how wide, how deep and long his love is for you. It'll melt your heart. That's where information, the gospel becomes sensation. Truth meditation. There's a huge difference between Eastern meditation and Christian meditation. Eastern meditation is clearing your mind. We've got to clear our mind. Christian meditation is filling your mind. It's the exact opposite. You don't clear your mind, you fill your mind. You take scripture, you fill your mind with scripture, and then you meditate on the power of what you read. And one of the greatest questions you can ever ask yourself in meditation is, Lord, if I really knew this in the depths of my being, how would it change my life? If I knew this principle, if I knew this verse, if I knew this truth, if I knew this passage, and and, in the innermost depths of who I am, how would it change my marriage? How would it change my career? How would it change my parenting? It's meditating on Scripture, meditating on truth. And then finally, and the most often overlooked one is holistic participation, and you see it all throughout the passage. Us, together, holy people, the church. These experiences happen when we're participating in community. A couple years ago when I was driving home from Mexico, I was able to go down there and visit our team and see the home and the children we take care of, and, and I was participating in community, participating in the... I was driving home, and it was like the power of God, the love of God hit me in my car ride home, and it brought me to tears. I mean, I felt God's love in such a very real, and yes, it happened when I was on my own, but it happened because I was participating. It's happened to me after Sundays, seeing what God does on a Sunday, and seeing the team, and the people serving, and working together, driving home. All of a sudden, I feel the presence of God in such a very strong way very real way. Some of you have told me about connect groups you've been in, where God showed up in the middle of the meeting, and, and you felt God's love in such a powerful way. For some of you, it's, it's been in the middle of worship. It's, it's, it's holistic participation. It's the power of information, doctrine, theology. Now, it is true that there is a type of emotion that will blind you to truth. Like, if you get really angry at somebody and you want to punch them in the mouth, that's your emotions blinding you of the truth because the truth is I punch this guy in the mouth, I'm going to be in trouble. But you're blinded by emotion. What I'm talking about today, what Paul is talking about, what he's showing us in Ephesians is an emotion that takes truth and doesn't blind you to truth, but takes truth and sears it into your heart. How would you be differently if the truth of God's love ambushed you? It ambushed you. How high, how wide, how deep. Yes, we know he loves us, but do you know, have you tasted the love? Have you had an experience of fire like Blaise Pascal talks about? An experience that brings you to overwhelming joy and tears like Jonathan Edwards. Have you received, I'm telling you, it, it'll alter your Christianity. I was talking to Mark Turnage who did Life of Christ with us. The dude's a brainiac. I mean, he's one of the top archaeologists, historians, intellectuals in the world. Many people, when they go into high-level academia, they lose their faith. Even people in high-level biblical academia lose their faith and their belief in God. He didn't. One of his professors asked him, how, 
how come you, your faith stayed strong and so many of your classmates, their faith was shattered as they, as they moved up the ranks in, in higher academia? He says, because I grew up in an experiential church. I, grew, I didn't grow up in a church where my whole religion was built on logical understanding of the Bible. I grew up in kind of the other side of Christianity that was all emotion experience, and I don't necessarily think that's healthy, but because he experienced God enough growing up, he was able to handle the other side without it shaking or shattering his faith. You know, one of the greatest, to me, one of the greatest expressions of information becoming sensation is water baptism. Think about it. Information, doctrine, theology. You die with Christ and God makes you new. That is what water baptism is. The doctrinal statement of water baptism is powerful. You become a new creation in Christ. The sensation of being fully immersed in water, you feel it on every aspect of your body. It's a picture of this. And I've actually seen many people through water baptism experience God's love. That's why I've seen people break down crying after water baptism because they sense God's love in such a real way. They sense that becoming a new creation. And so if you've never been water baptized before or you've never been water baptized since you made a decision to passionately serve God, I'm going to invite you to go public today with your faith. Would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? I'm going to count to the number three. I know many of you are already prepared. You're going to go. Some of you are going to go, and you weren't prepared, but we're prepared for you. As I said earlier, we've got shorts. We've got towels. We've got T-shirts. We've got photographers. We've got people who will manage your, watch your phone for you for the, for the 90 seconds you're separated. If you've never been water baptized and you want to go public today with that decision, I'm going to count to the number three. When I get to the number three, go right out the back door. There's a table. They'll give you everything you need. And then you'll come right on the side here and join me. We're going to go into a time of baptism. We're going to sing one song at the end of the song. When we're ready for the baptism, I want to invite everyone to come outside and gather around the baptismal. And we're just going to celebrate and cheer people on that are making this decision to go public. If you need to be baptized today, Maybe you're not even a Christian yet. Go to the table. We'll pray with you to become a Christian and then be water baptized the very next minute. You can do all of that right now. One, two, three. If that's you, go right now to the back. Go to the table. Grab a shirt. Grab some shorts. Grab a towel. Let's worship together, and then we're going to go into a time of baptism in a moment.